Welcome to the Anti-Racist Educator podcast. This episode is part of our series looking at anti-racist theory and pedagogy with key experts from the UK and beyond. My name is Melina and I'm co-hosting with Khadija today and we are delighted to be virtually joined by Professor Gloria Ladson-Billings all the way from the United States. Welcome Gloria, how are you? I'm fine, thank you for the invitation. And you and your family are keeping well during the summer of the pandemic? Yes, we are, you know, safe and at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, thank you. Um, and how are you, Khadija? How has your summer been so far in Scotland? Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. And the summer in Scotland has also been spent at home. Um, I'm working remotely from home. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that the, the kind of boundary between work and home has been slightly buzzed because you tend to then overwork to compensate and not good, not good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going back to school next week, so I'm looking forward to having that physical uh, separation of work and then home being just home. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so yeah, today we'll, we'll be building on our previous two episodes on critical race theory um, and we'll be introducing culturally re relevant pedagogy. Um, so we're incredibly lucky and honoured that Gloria is here to help us with this considering she's one of the pioneers of culturally relevant pedagogy. Um, by way of introduction, Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings is an African-American pedagogical theorist, um, a teacher educator, and a professor emerita at the University of Wisconsin. Um, she was the former Kellner Family Distinguished Professor in Urban Education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, and she was faculty affiliate in the Department of Educational Policy, Studies, Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis, and African, uh, sorry, Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin. Gloria is also the president of the National Academy of Education and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her research examines the pedagogical practices of teachers who are successful with African-American students, which can be found in her book, The Dreamkeepers. And she also investigates critical race theory applications to education. So in our two previous episodes, we interviewed Paul Warmington and David Gilborn uh, for a breakdown of critical race theory. So Gloria, you've researched and published wild, widely um, about critical race theory. Um, perhaps you could share how critical race theory has helped you develop more inclusive approaches to pedagogy. Um, so for example, looking at interest conversions and interest divergence. Um, I know in Scotland, diversity in education is often framed as something that only benefits pupils of color. So white majority schools in Scotland don't see it as something that's worthy for them. Um, so how can critical race theory help us debunk that myth? So, um, you know, you, you pointed to the, one of the tenets of critical race theory, which is interest convergence. And um, I think it's a very powerful tool to understand why it is that we do certain things. So you know a little bit about U.S. history, you know that one of the most uh, powerful um, landmark Supreme Court decisions is something called Brown versus Board of Education. It was a Supreme Court decision that uh, basically said separate uh, but equal is, doesn't exist that separate is inherently unequal because we actually had separate schools for black 
and brown children uh, that were legal. Um, in the South, they were set up as separate districts. In the North, we called it de facto. In other words, people went to the schools in their neighborhood, but we had all black neighborhoods and all white neighborhoods. Um, and so often we, we herald Brown as a, this great triumph of civil rights. And it does have a very uh, important place in our history. But critical race theory helps you drill down and see that it really is, it's less an education decision than it was a foreign policy decision and it created an interest conversion. So what do I mean by it being a foreign policy decision? Do you remember the timing? It's 1954. We are in the midst of the Cold War. We have just come out of World War II. The US and the then Soviet Union have divided the world in half. And so there are the allies, the Western, you know, NATO and, and those folks who, you know, promote their brand of Western democracy. And then there are the Soviets who are promoting both communism and a socialist economic system. But there's a bunch of countries that are, are not aligned. They're not uh, paired with either. And so the war is, for the Cold War is all about how many more people can we get on our side? So the Soviets were really going deep into uh, Africa, Latin America, and so to combat what they were doing, um, the U.S. kept trying to promote this democracy. Well, one specific thing that the Soviets had to hold over the U.S. was the way in which the U.S. treated black people. So they would show these film clips of, of black civil rights workers being sprayed down with water hoses and having dogs sicked on them just for wanting to go vote, just for wanting to uh, sit at a lunch counter. And then they would, you know, beam that out around the world and say, is this the democracy that you want to be a part of? Is this? And so the U.S. Was, was frantic to change the optics. And so the Brown decision became a perfect uh, place to do that. And it's interesting about Brown, you know, if you hear about our Supreme Court ruling, sometimes you'll hear it was a 5-4 decision or it was a 6-3, you know, that it breaks down often ideologically in different interpretations of the law. Brown was a unanimous decision that separate was inherently unequal, but it was less about the schools. It was more about who are we on the world stage? So what white power brokers wanted out of Brown was to show, look, we are, we're, we're true to what we say about democracy. So that's their interest. But the interest of black people was, could we get better schooling? That's the convergence. So there's no, no reason to make it romantic, you know? Uh, and what's interesting about Brown, it's so iconic in the US. Uh, I, I have a colleague, um, who studies the Supreme Court. And she interviewed every member of the court and asked them of all of the court cases uh, that have come down, which ones do you believe must be taught? Now there's just, you know, there are hundreds of cases. Well, they all say um, 
a case called Marbury versus Madison, which makes sense. That's the case about judicial review, the role of courts. They all agree with that. The only other one that they all agree on is Brown. Now the irony is we're more segregated today than we were uh, in some, you know, in, uh, when Brown was in place, before Brown was in place in some instances. But we have this mythology about Brown. Now, Brown is an example of one mythology that we have. Every nation has mythologies. I'm not saying that the, the US is different, you know. Um, the UK has its mythology of, you know, of empire. When I grew up as, a, as a, a young girl in school, we used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire, right? <laughs> the idea is that this is the place that I don't care where you are in the world, there's, there's some country, some territory, some place that belongs to Britain. The U.S. has a mythology about progress, that we are constantly progressing. And it has this view of this progress as a straight line. What critical race theory does is interrupt that particular narrative and shows you over and over that, you, that we, we're not just uh, this sort of, quote, exceptional nation. That's the other part of our story, is that we're exceptional. We're not like the rest of the nations. We're not an exception. We are like most Western European nations in terms of the sense of hierarchy and uh, position that we ignore any developments, any uh, breakthroughs or what have you that other nations have. So our, our students think of European history is where history begins. You know, there, there's some little notion of, oh yeah, well, there was this thing, it, there was Mesopotamia, right? There was a Nile Valley. But those people down there weren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of that, that mythology. Um, and so the U.S., having seen itself as an exceptional nation, was always problematic for me. Critical race theory has allowed me to, to dig deeper and begin to see, well, why would we tell the story this way? What is it that we're trying to say about uh, ourselves? And again, every single nation has its story. The U.S. has been interesting because it's changed its story a lot of times. The, when I was a kid, the story was we all, we're all pilgrims. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> you know, we all came over on what was obviously the world's biggest boat, the Mayflower, and ended up in, quote, New England. That's what we call that part of our country, <laughs> India. Um, that particular narrative just couldn't hold because what do you do with the 500 different indigenous people who are already here? They didn't come over on a boat with you. What do you do when 1619 rolls around and you have brought 20 Africans with you? They didn't come over on the Mayflower. And so then we, we shifted the narrative. And now the narrative is, oh, we're a nation of immigrants. And we still hold that particular narrative. Critical race theory would say, no, that, that doesn't hold either. Because again, the indigenous folks, they didn't immigrate here. They were here. Uh, black folks can't be considered immigrants if you force them here. 
uh, Latinx or Latino people can't be considered immigrants if they really developed here as a, a kind of mixture of the indigenous and the Spanish. So we keep telling that story to ourselves and critical race theory does a wonderful job of telling the counter stories and that's another tenet. We do interest convergence, but counter narratives are very important in critical race theory. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, so um, we, we see that in, in the UK as well, this uh, sort of national myth. Um, it's not really the country of immigrants, it's more um, the yeah British Empire, but then um, it did everyone a favor. So um, it's been really helpful thinking about critical race theory and counter narratives, how we can debunk those myths um, in education. Um, so I suppose we can maybe think about um, culturally re relevant pedagogy. So how that that's idea of counter narratives um, has maybe led you to uh, develop culturally relevant pedagogy, focusing on young people's voices rather than the voices of um, the racialized elites and those with the most power. Um, I mean, we've done a bit of work around decolonizing the curriculum. It's a lot about questioning whose knowledge is valued, whose narratives are valued. Um, so perhaps you could break down culturally relevant pedagogy for our listeners. Sure, and actually, in, in terms of my own research trajectory, culturally relevant pedagogy comes first. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I graduated from graduate school at Stanford, um, I had been sort of filled with literature that really talks about cultural deficits and cultural disadvantages when it came to uh, African-American children. And the prevailing question was really what's wrong with these kids, right? Why can't they learn? And because we have a very distinct racialized pattern of academic achievement. It, you know, we, we can tell you how well a youngster will do in school if we know what their quote zip code is, you know, it's probably called a mail code in, in, in Europe, but we know what that code is. We, we can pretty much say how well you'll do in school, which, you know, ought to, cause people to pause and say, wow, you know, is, are, are we systematically um, keeping kids from being able to succeed? So what bothered me about the notion that we kept trying to figure out what was wrong with the kids or their parents or their community or their culture um, was it didn't take into consideration that there are actually some instances where kids do well, kids that you would predict not to do well. So I kind of flipped the research question. Instead of asking what is wrong with these children, I said, well, what's right with them? And what happens in a classroom where the children, their teachers, their families and community get it right? So I began searching for outstanding teachers, teachers who were effective with black children. Now, it's an interesting way in which I went about this task because, it, you know, the, the typical research way is just pull up test scores. But I knew if I looked at test scores, I wasn't going to find anything because the test scores, you know, the, the, what's in the test and what gets asked of students in the test gets back to your whole question of, you know, curriculum and what, what, what people think is worth knowing. Instead, 
I went to black churches and met with black parents. And I asked these parents, if you could put your child in anyone's classroom in this, in this school district, where would you put them? And they were very forthcoming. They had plenty of names to give me and plenty of reasons for why they thought a person was a particularly good teacher. You know, but I'm a researcher, so I couldn't just rely on them. So I then went to schools in the community that I was working in, and I asked the principal, or what you would call the head teacher, of all your teachers, if you had to put a kid in a classroom and you could guarantee, you know, that you were pretty sure that that youngster would be successful, who are the teachers that you would choose? And they also were very forthcoming. And they had different reasons. Their reasons did revolve around things like school attendance and test scores and not having to deal with discipline problems from the particular teachers. But what I did is I looked to see which names showed up on both lists. And those became the teachers that I was interested in interviewing and hopefully observing. Um, I ended up with nine names in common, although I had about 20 on each list. Nine of them showed up on, on both um, lists. And eight of the nine agreed to meet with me and be interviewed. Now, to kind of make a, a long story short, in the beginning when I was observing these teachers, they all seemed so different. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I don't really have anything here. This is so idiosyncratic. Um, you know, and you worry about this, particularly when you've got a funded study. It's like, oh, I have nothing. Um, but I went back through their interviews and I began to see some important themes that really rose above technique. And that to me was really eye-opening. And it really sort of sat in this place that I would call teacher beliefs, uh, how they thought about themselves and their students and the, and the families, uh, how they thought about social relations. You know, how do you, you, you get kids to work together? How do you work with families? And how they thought about the nature of knowledge. Were they people who just said, oh, this is the book, this is the curriculum, this is what I teach? Or were they willing to be, as um, Henry Giroux says, intellectuals, teachers that's intellectuals? Were they willing to question? Uh, and that was true of all of them, despite their different, quote, techniques. Um, I was able to then take what I'd learned from them and kind of distill it into three important uh, uh, concepts or ideas or propositions that, to form the theory. One is that culturally relevant teachers are teachers who focus on student learning that that's important to them, not just having kids behave. And one of the things that we saw over and over in the literature is that black kids in particular um, got a lot of attention around their behavior. You know, are they seated? Are they quiet? Are they, you know, respectful? Um, but these are teachers who said, no, my job is to ensure that they learn. The second part of their work uh, was a focus on what I've come to call cultural competence. And it's what I would call the perhaps the most misunderstood aspect of the work. Because I think people think, well, if I put up a poster of Nelson Mandela, or there's a poster somewhere of Harriet Tubman or Cesar Chavez, then I've been culturally competent. 
No, that's not what I'm talking about. Cultural competence is the recognition that number one, students show up with culture. They have their own language, they have their own customs, they have their traditions, they have their ideas, um, they have their own perspectives that emanate from that culture. And that the role of the teacher is to leverage that culture to help students access at least one other culture. So in the case of black or brown students, we're talking about that culture that they need to leverage might be the mainstream culture, might be um, the, the uh, culture of education or the culture of the, the workplace and business. Uh, but you do it without denigrating what they bring with them. You don't tell them they don't know how to speak. Uh, it's interesting that I have this conversation with you here in, in Scotland because many years ago, we had a big controversy in the U.S. over the use of what we call Black English. Um, and it was, you know, all kinds of furious fighting about that's corrupt language and it's ignorant and it's this and it's that. And this will tell you just how long ago it was. I got a fax <laughs> from <laughs> some educators in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And they said, don't let them take your language. And, you know, I thought, well, gee, why would they say that? But I, I now having been to Scotland three or four times now, I understand, you know, the English that is spoken in Scotland is not the English that is spoken in London, right? Um, but that there is a language that you, that, that you develop that embodies the way you see the world. So this cultural competence, as I said, is misunderstood. It's not just about coming up with a, a group of things that these people do. It's understanding and appreciating what students bring with them. Then the third component that's probably more linked to critical race theory is critical consciousness or sociopolitical consciousness. And I would say this is the component that is the most ignored because teachers will say, oh, no, I'm, I'm not getting into any of that political stuff without realizing that teaching in and of itself is a political act. You are making a decision as a teacher to either help students fit into the existing structure, even though that structure is inequitable, or you are making a decision to have students challenge that structure. And uh, so that part of it is, is a hard part uh, simply because a lot of times even the teachers who want to do more political work often want to do it around their interests. Uh, so I've gone into schools and classrooms and kids are working on um, environmental things and uh, saving the rainforest. And I'll ask them, well, you know, well, where's the rainforest? And they'll tell me, I have no idea. Okay. We're just doing this because she wants to do this. So that's the teacher's agenda. Whereas if you actually ask kids things like, you know, what's concerning you or what's bothering you, it might be something as simple as the fact that the school has, um, this is very prevalent in the U.S., they ha we have hat rules. What I mean by that, kids cannot wear hats in the building, you know, and I mean, most kids wear baseball caps all the time. Um, and kids will say, you know, I don't understand why we have this rule. And it's interesting to me because when I ask the adults why they have it, they can't tell you either. I mean, they'll, they'll come back with something about, oh, it's disrespectful 
oh, oh, it's signifying that someone's in a gang. And I said, well, you know, that's kind of silly. If they could use a hat to signify gang membership, why couldn't they come up with something else? Why couldn't it be socks, right? You know, the certain color socks. I mean, it really is, again, about power and control. And what the kids often are most interested in about the hat rule is not so much that we have the rule, but the unequal application of the rule. So what a culturally relevant teacher would do is say, okay, well, let's do this. Let's devise a survey and let's ask, let's divide the school up and then different students will ask all of the kids in this grade level, um, whether or not they've ever been stopped for wearing a hat, what happened as a result, and make sure you get the demographic information. Is the person, what race or ethnicity are they? Uh, what gender are they? And sure enough, the students are able to show that black students were un, in, unequally sanctioned. Lots of people had hats on, but mostly the white kids say, oh, well, yeah, I had on a hat and the the principal or the teacher told me to take it off and that was sort of the end of it. But black kids will say, well, I had on a hat and I was sent to the office and I was detained. And, you know, sometimes it even escalates into school suspension over a hat. Now, is that the social political critical consciousness I'm, I'm interested in? No, not as an adult. But if I'm 15, this is the thing that I want to know about. Why are you inequitably applying the rules? So that part of, of, of the uh, culturally relevant pedagogy is often ignored because teachers see it as, quote, too dangerous. But it's really, if we're saying we're raising them to be democratic citizens, it's the skill they need most. Um. Thank you for that, uh, Gloria. I, you know, I remember you came in 2015 and you again spoke at the series um, conference in Edinburgh and I was in the, the, the audience and I took some notes down, which I'm still looking at right this moment. <laughs> and you mentioned cultural competence or multiculturalism. And you said people use it as a proxy, but that we need people to understand racism and actually name the elephant in the room, the sanitized use of language that stops us from saying the word race. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we see that quite often, you know, within our own institutions here, Gloria, and particularly when you're talking about, you know, the, the use of language, oftentimes our young people who are multilingual, bilingual, mm -hmm. are told at very early age, um, now don't speak, you know, in Urdu or Punjabi, or don't speak, in Polish because you're here to learn English mm -hmm. yeah and mm -hmm. oftentimes their parents also have that kind of messaging sent out to them and so therefore they will say to the school no no please don't speak don't encourage my child to speak in their first language either because we want them to learn English so it's an interesting scenario that builds up there for our young people so it goes back to whose language is being valued right into that whose culture is being valued and it does become a very kind of stereotyped approach to them looking at cultural competency, isn't it? Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, and to your point about, you know, my talking about multiculturalism as kind of a, a proxy, it reminds me that I think when I first met David Gilborn, we were on a panel together 
at the American Educational Research Association. And it was a quote, multicultural education panel. And I said something like, it's time to call a moratorium on multicultural education. <laughs> yeah. Because much like Martin Luther King, and, and I, I got this idea from a, a, a public intellectual named Michael Eric Dyson, who said, you know, it's time to call a moratorium on the I have a dream speech. Let's not hear it anymore. Let's not say it anymore because it keeps being um, repeated out of context. We never get the first part of that speech where he talks about, we've assembled in Washington to collect on a promissory note that the nation has written. And we, you know, we can't, we, we, will, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt, you know, but the, the, I have a dream is the flowery part. And so that's the only part that people get asked to, to kind of reflect on. So he said, I think it's time to call a moratorium and we're not going to say it anymore. Let, let's, let's just think more about some of the other economic injustices that Martin Luther King spoke about. Let's talk about his anti-war stance. So I said, I think it's time to call a moratorium on multicultural education because all of a sudden it's everybody's thing. Uh, and at the end of my presentation, David, who I didn't really know, leaned over. He says, you and I need to talk. <laughs> and so we started, we put our heads together and realized that um, people didn't want to talk about race. Um, they just don't want to deal with how complex an idea uh, and, and how pernicious it is, uh, how destructive it is. Uh, I've just did a, a article last year in the Peabody Journal of Education on what I've called the social funding of race. And it's an idea that I came up with about mm, 16 years ago now. And in fact, I left that paper on my desktop for 12, 13 years. I just couldn't let it go. But it came to me, I'd been on leave out at Stanford at the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Sciences. And one of the requirements when you're at the center is you have to give a seminar and you have to go to everybody's seminar. So once a week we go and listen. And, and so the center has everybody in all the social science disciplines. We have sociologists and legal scholars and historians and anthropologists and economists. I mean, it's a very very interesting um, and intellectually rich environment. And so I went to hear a talk by a professor from Harvard who does work in aesthetics. And he gave this talk in which he explained that Americans were woefully inept when it came to the appreciation of art. He said, you know, we go into an art museum and we'll look at the piece, whether it's a painting or a sculpture or whatever it is, and we'll look at the piece for like two seconds. And then we quickly default to reading the little box on the side that has the name of the, the artist and when they, when they were born and where they're from and uh, what kind of work they're known for. He said, we default to the literacy because literacy is fully funded in our society. And he wasn't just talking about how much money we spend on literacy. It's that everywhere you look or turn, 
the expectation for reading is there. Even if you engage in antisocial behavior, you often do it using literacy. You don't use it using art. So if a youngster is in a classroom, you know, with his or her cell phone, they're not paying attention. They're texting a friend somewhere. That's literacy. They have to use the literacy to do it. If someone wants to rob a bank, they come in there with a note. I mean, so even in the most antisocial environments, we're constantly, and when he said that, I thought, oh my goodness, that's what we do with race. We fully fund this concept. So I, I, I wrote this, this piece because in many ways I've been writing all the stuff about critical race theory. Uh, I'm kind of a, a science fiction nerd. And so, you know, I've watched all these Star Wars and uh, Star Trek movies. And one of the patterns of these movies is that you'll see about two or three in a series, and then they'll take you all the way back to the front and say, oh, we've got to do a prequel. We've got to tell everybody how it all started. <laughs> so I think of that social funding piece as the prequel for my critical race theory work, because it really talks about how did we begin thinking about race in this way? And how do we keep feeding it to kids? So I give a lot of examples of uh, an experience of me as a preschool parent. Uh, my daughter went to a preschool where, um, because I hadn't gotten in line when she was in utero, uh, the only way I could get her into the school was uh, I had to volunteer. You know, they're like, we have no spaces unless you're willing to be a participating parent. So one day a week I would go in and my, my job was kind of just to play with kids and just help them along. Uh, we had one youngster in the class who was a recent immigrant from Northern Italy. And one day we, I was sitting at a table, an art table, and he came over to, to, to do some art. But he looked across the room and he saw my daughter and the one other black child in the class who was a little boy. And he said to me, oh, which one is yours? To me, that was a perfectly honest, observant question for that child to ask. But you could feel a tension among the, uh, the teachers that he noticed. And so I said to him, oh, oh, the girl, Jessica, that's my daughter. And he said, oh, okay. I mean, it was just like, to me, it was like no, the difference between noticing a red ball or a blue ball. A couple weeks later, this same little boy came in and he was wearing a gorgeous, obviously handmade sweater. And I admired it. And I said, oh, Mario, what a beautiful sweater. I said, where did you get it? He says, my grandmother in Italy. She made it and she sent it to me. I said, oh, that's beautiful. He said, she sent my sister one, she sent my mother one, and she sent my father one. And I said, oh, okay, well then I guess I have to come and live at your house so I can get one of those sweaters. And he said, well, you can't live at my house. He said, we don't have any brown people at my house. Again, that was an observation. He was not making a judgment about me. But when he said that, those teachers just, yeah. oh, Mario, that's not nice. Yeah. <laughs> now, in the paper, what I say is he did not have race funded for him. 
because he'd been in a totally different environment, but we will keep funding it in the US. By the time he's six or seven years old, he'll know, can't talk about this. This is a taboo, yeah. you know. And, and so then later I talk about, even I do it, you know, because we're, we're, we're all submerged in this. My daughter then went to kindergarten and there was a um, recent immigrant uh, Chinese girl. They were our neighbors. Her father was a visiting scholar. Uh, and they were very dependent on us. The father spoke English, but the mother, not so much. And the little girl as a five-year-old was, of course, trying to learn. So every day after their half day of kindergarten, she went and had her um, lunch. And then she'd show up right at my door to play with my daughter every single day, which was fine because I'm glad my daughter had someone to play with. One day, the little girl comes in and she says to me, where's the white Barbie, you know, the Barbie dolls, right? And I say in my nicest voice, oh, sweetheart, we don't have any white Barbies. And as a typical five-year-old, she says, why? I said, well, I just don't think she'd be that comfortable living here. <laughs> why? I said, well, she probably won't like the food that I, that I prepare. Why? You know, she probably won't like the music we play. I mean, I'm, I'm going one by one. And of course, you, you've worked with young children. You know, the whys never stop <laughs> until they get kind of what they want. And then all of a sudden she stops and she says, there she is. There's the white Barbie. Now, I'm, you know, my eyes are, are bulging because who on earth has brought a white Barbie doll into my house when I have been so deliberate about what I would expose my black daughter to? When I see this little Chinese girl grab the doll, the doll is black. She's in a wedding dress. <laughs> She does not have race funded for her. And here I am, because I'm only thinking of race as a quote, American, I'm giving all these explanations. Now, fast forward a few years, we move out of Cal, this is all in California. We move out of California, we move to Wisconsin. Her father finishes his time at Stanford and takes a job in Chicago, which is about you know, a two and a half hour drive from here uh, in, in the state of Illinois. So they're excited because we stayed in touch with them even though we moved and they, they want to get the girls together. So now they're older, they're about eight years old. And I have them at, I have her at my house for Christmas over the Christmas uh, vacation. And I overhear a conversation she and my daughter are having and she references herself as yellow. And my daughter says, well, wait a minute. When we were in California, you said you were white. And she says, yeah, I didn't know. And automatically, I think, what has happened to this child? Someone has told her, you might be very light, but you don't get to be in this category. Yeah. Yeah. This is a special category. So you see what I'm saying? That we are, quote, funding this concept from the time they're very young. And 
why it's important for me as a teacher educator is that they're 19 and 20 years old with race fully funded for them when they sit in my classrooms. I can't defund that concept in four yeah. semesters. Yeah, it's, it's almost that um, unlearning, isn't it? It's about how do we get them to unlearn all that that has gone on in the past. And, and again, in, in, when you were in Edinburgh last year in 2019, Gloria, you talked about that. You said that we start funding race from an early age. Mm -hmm. and, and you've just talked about that. And an example, even here in Scotland, when I talk to my own students is, you know, um, I give them a scenario of a young child at nursery. So it's like kindergarten, preschool, saying, look, look, there's a brown lady over there. And the, the nursery teacher very quickly says, Shh, we mm -hmm. don't say things like that. And mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll say to the students, you know, what? how would you react if a young person said that to you? And most often they'll come back with saying, oh, we would, we would actually not say anything. We would just try to ignore it. And so would any of you actually say, yes, that is a brown lady over there? Mm -hmm. and then begin to then unpack that in more subtle ways within your settings. Right. But it's back to that, you know, let's just ignore it, but what messages are you sending out to those young people? So it's back to that funding of the race. And so it's, we don't talk about people who are brown, mm -hmm. and it's something that we don't, we, don't, we don't want to encourage, and we just ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore, that's a real issue. And for me, really, it's about... Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that because I've been recently a part of a group where we're looking at um, anti-racist work within early years and early year settings. So children who are as young as, you know, three, four, five, um, and early years practitioners often turn around and say, uh, but talking to children about race just puts ideas in their heads, mm. <laughs> you know? Um, Even anti-blackness and yeah, as I say, as I often say, it's like saying, um, "Don't talk about sex, and they won't do it." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, any, the, yeah, the, any the, the the thing that I think is really interesting, and I wrote a paper on this. I've never published it. I, I was going to publish it one time, and 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 I, I never got around to it. I wrote a paper called Still Playing in the Dark, uh, which is a takeoff of Toni Morrison's uh, analysis of the Africanist presence in, quote, um, the literature of the canon, the literature of, Hel of, of Melville and Hawthorne and the people that our students have to read in order to be considered educated. And she'd argued that even though the Black characters are not prominent, that they're, they're there, they're there in metaphor, they're there, you know, talks about Moby Dick and the sort of the shadows on the wall represent that African is present because that's what they're, what, what they're afraid of. And I wrote this paper called Still Playing in the Dark that talks about children and young adults literature. And what I argued is that um, the authors of the literature are actually bolder than teachers are willing to be. They're willing to put things in the books, uh, but it's what teachers decide they will or will not do with it. And in fact, I think when last uh, year at that series conference, someone did a, had a graphic that showed 
the percentage of uh, characters in a book, um, largely white, a lot of male. Um, and I think only 10% of all the books have black characters. But even with those characters, um, we don't do very much with it. So there's a book that's very, very famous uh, by Isra Jack Keats called A Snowy Day. Uh, all of my kids who are now adults have had that book. It's a picture book. And uh, I didn't, I never thought very much of it, although I, you know, I bought it because it was a little brown boy in the snow. But there's nothing in the storyline that speaks to race. So I always thought it was like, nah, I guess you just have to have it. But when I was doing the research for this paper, what I learned is that um, Keats agonized over that story because it turns out that that little boy is the first uh, brown-skinned protagonist in a children's book in the U.S., in a mainstream children's. He's a first. And that Keats kept saying, I've had this kid in my mind for years and I knew he belonged in a book. I just needed to find the right book to put him in. So it was a breakthrough. I have searched over a hundred lesson plans online on this book. Not once is Peter's skin color mentioned. No one ever says, so, so Keats, took the leap back in the 50s to put this kid in the book and not one teacher opens up that book showing it the pictures to the kids saying oh what do you notice about Peter or why do you think he made him brown I mean th th there's just no conversation so that's just one example I began to look at a number of books in which the authors have taken on race very deliberately and it turns out that our teachers will avoid, even if they use the book, they kind of avoid the race topic. So we have a very famous book um, called The Watson Family Goes to Birmingham, Summer 1963. Now, summer of 1963 in Birmingham is really a powerful time in the U.S. because this is a time where uh, Ku Klux Klan members bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church and killed four black little girls in that church. The story starts out in Detroit and eventually they, they end up that summer into uh, uh, Birmingham. I went to our children's literature classes when they were gonna teach the book to hear the conversation that our soon to be teachers were having about that book. They went on and on about the mother in the story and her child rearing practices and that she was too harsh on her voice. And I'm sitting there going, there's four dead people. <laughs> you know, can, can we talk about the four dead little girls? They don't want to touch that. So even when you, you present them, and it's one of the reasons why I've moved away from worrying so much about curriculum, because you can have great curriculum but if the teachers have no inclination to engage that curriculum, it just sits there. One of the things that really struck me about those teachers that I call the dream keepers is sometimes they had terrible curriculum because it was a very poor school district and they didn't have the latest books, but they would interrogate the problems in, those, in that curriculum. Uh, I observed one teacher once who was teaching about um, 
Africa and the book she had had a statement that said the people of Nigeria are very primitive. And that was in the book. She, so she, what she said to the students, she says, what does that mean? And so the students would say, oh, they don't, they don't wear much clothes and they don't have any modern conveniences and they don't, and she took down all they said. And these are black kids saying this about Nigerians. She then had a whole series of slides of pictures of Lagos, downtown Lagos. And she would say to the kids, well, where do you think this is? And they would, oh, that's Tokyo. Oh, that's France. Oh, that's England. I mean, they were, you know, she said, and then once she showed them all, she said, every one of those pictures was Lagos, Nigeria. And the kids are like, what? So she said, okay, so you had that evidence and you have what the book says. What do you now, you know, what, what, what question do you want, now want to ask? So then the kids are now, this, so this is to me that kind of critical consciousness, right? That you don't just take the knowledge in the book as a given, but you interrogate it. And so the kids begin to understand is that we can't just trust it because it's in a book. Mm -hmm. um, it's that kind of willingness to uh, mine the information the, the curriculum can't teach itself. I don't care how good it is. It cannot teach itself. And I have seen teachers subvert excellent curriculum. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just, I had this written down in my notes that you mentioned that in your talk last year about a skilled teacher with a bad curriculum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and so absolutely. And we, we find that often here, um, Gloria, where there's been lots of conversations around decolonizing the curriculum. There have been conversations around providing teachers with toolkits um, in, in order to navigate those conversations around race. But I'm often really, um, I think I'm really averse to that aspect because again, it's back to that. You could, it depends on who's delivering that toolkit. Right. Um, and they actually right. want to reinforce those negative stereotypes. That, that, that go on on a day-to-day -day basis within, within schools and institutions. Hmm. Um, and I think the challenge for our teachers is this sort of self-examination, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Who are your friends that are different from, from yourself? You know, my husband and I um, live in a basically white middle-class community. And of course, we've had, you know, people have gone through life changes. They've had weddings, particularly weddings of their children, or we've had um, neighbors who have passed away and they've had funerals. We go to these events and we're the only black people there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I say to my husband all the time is I said, can you imagine somebody living 80 years and they only know two black people? I mean, it, it, it's, it's stunning to me the way in which we live in these ethnic uh, enclaves. Mm -hmm. And we always want to talk about the black or the brown uh, folks as being ethnically encapsulated. It's white people who are the most segregated people that we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think what you were saying as well about looking at the curriculum and using a bad curriculum to um, even critically question power and thinking about how we can provide those counter narratives even when we don't have necessarily the resources um, in, in these times where uh, unexceptional circumstances of the pandemic. Um, perhaps if we do have a bit of time, um, we could 
talk about um, what you, you mentioned in one of your recent uh, webinars, the idea of a dual pandemic or multiple pandemics going on and how do we use critic, uh, culturally relevant pedagogy to um, build culturally relevant schools post and during pandemics. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that if we have time? Yes. Um, so you're right. I originally started talking about these dual pandemics, uh, but the more I spent time looking at what was happening and, and talking with other colleagues, I realized that we are really battling four pandemics. The obvious one is COVID-19. It's the one that is keeping us all in our houses and schools are closing and we're working remotely from home and cannot visit loved ones and we're wearing masks. That one we know about. But at the same time, there is a, there's a race uh, or white supremacist pandemic, let me put it that way, that has been there a while and we have ignored it. And so it culminates in these incidents, like in the US, what we saw with George Floyd's death, <clears throat> with Armand Arbery's death, with Breonna Taylor being shot in her home, in her bed. So there, there's that uh, white supremacist pandemic. The third pandemic is the coming economic pandemic. There is no way, given all that has happened in the world, that we can maintain uh, the financial situation <clears throat> that people can be sustained. And what, what we're seeing, for example, in the US is because people haven't been able to work, they're going to soon lose their housing. Um, people are losing health care. I mean, so that economic pandemic is, you know, and businesses, you know, are going out of, you know, uh, small business and large businesses. So there's a looming economic pandemic. And then the fourth one we all know about, we know, but we just act like it's happening somewhere else. And that's the climate catastrophe. <laughs> it's not getting better. I mean, I think watching last year, the fires in Australia really, really kind of gave me a kind of wake up call because typically we think of, oh, these climate things are happening. It's about the polar bear by himself on the ice floe. Well, that's so far away, I don't wanna think about that. Or maybe it's the rainforest and it's, oh, those people, well, you know, they're quote, uh, uh, in an underdeveloped uh, or a developing nation. But no, Australia is very much a part of the so-called first world. Australia is highly technological and it, the whole continent's burning up. Uh, so all four of these things are happening and yet we have a responsibility to try to educate in the midst of them. And so I've been really, really touched by um, the Indian author, uh, Arhurandadi Roy. Yeah. Love and her she, work. <laughs> yes. And so I've been actually using a quote from her that talks a lot about what pandemics are. I, I'm going to actually read it so I don't get it wrong. But she says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred and our avarice, our data banks and our dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us, or we can walk through lightly with little baggage, 
ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. So this has been really important to me. So I, I get a lot of calls locally about what do I think about going back to school? Uh, you know, the narrative here is we got to get back to normal. And I was actually quoted in yesterday's paper saying, no, the kids that I most care about don't want to go back to normal because normal for them means they're failing, they're being suspended, they're being ostracized, they're receiving a substandard education. They don't want normal, they want new. And so in some ways, this pandemic can be an opportunity to do something very, very new. And that her notion of it's a portal, it will take us, it can take us from the old to the new. Um, and then I've kind of been looking at places in the world that have had to deal with catastrophic things and, and start anew. So if you looked at World War, post-World War II Japan, they totally redid their schools. They didn't just go back after Hiroshima and Nagasaki was bombed and said, okay, let's all just turn to page 27. It was like, you know what? We got to do some stuff differently. Um, they became much more aware of the need to educate girls. Um, similarly, post-World War II Italy, you know, we rave about Reggio Emilia uh, preschool. They come after World War II where they say, you know what, we, we don't want to raise another generation of fascists. This is, this is not right. We got to do something different. So I think that's, this is the moment that we can be in. Um, but, you know, my old high school physics tells me nature abhors a vacuum. If we don't do anything, we just sort of sit around and wait to go back and do what we've been doing. There are other forces, and we saw this in the U.S. Uh, post-Hurricane Katrina, that neoliberal forces moved right in and said, you know what, we don't need those public schools. We're going to have charter schools. They fired all the Black teachers in New Orleans, is a, it was a district that had a large number of black, they fired them and brought in all of these, uh, you know, emergency prepared teachers, alternatively certified teachers to just make sure kids pass a standardized test. That's not what I'm talking about when I say do something new. Uh, we have a chance, an opportunity to save this planet if we want to do it. Um, so that's, that's the, 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 work that I've been talking about. I've also made a big point of saying that I don't think the academics is the, is the most important thing to worry about. Everybody's at a similar disadvantage with academics. Nobody's been to school, right? Well, not the same ad advantage, because certainly if you have a, uh, if your mom was a teacher or if you're in a middle-class household, you may have more resources. But in terms of receiving the credentialing, we're all, quote, a year behind because of that. What I think is much more important are the social and emotional needs that students are exhibiting, not being able to be around one another, not being able to be around other caring adults, and the mental health issues that are emerging. Those are the, those are the first emergencies, not whether someone can do math or science, that that will come. And we should also not presume, at least from what I've seen in the U.S., that just because students have um, not been in school, that they haven't been learning. Much of the public protests that you have seen in the U.S. come 
it's, it's really fueled by young people. They've been learning a lot of things. They've been learning a lot of things about civics and their rights as uh, citizens, uh, what they can and cannot uh, achieve. So they haven't not learned uh, the awkward construction, but they, they've been learning something. But they've also had this uh, incredible disadvantage of not being able to join together with friends and, as I said, and caring adults. Um, one of the things that I'm, I worry a lot about is because COVID-19 has inordinately impacted black and brown people in the U.S. and you have not been able to practice what have been your cultural rituals around death because we could not have funerals with lots of people. Um, those funerals are not for those people. We know those funerals are for us. It's a way to, to have proper and respectful closure. We bring the family and friends all together. We sing the praises of that person. Uh, we keep them alive in our memory. Uh, well, we haven't had that. Now, I worry that our children are carrying that grief with them and have not been able to process it. They just know Miss So-and-so, who was my neighbor, is dead, and I'll just never see her again. Um, so I think that those are the things that, the, that we have to attend to in a post-pandemic uh, education setting. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's probably on a lot of teachers' minds right now, going back into the classroom and just being able to have that human connection again and trying to support pupils' mental health. And it's, it's good for our mental health, again, uh, to connect. Um, I mean, the points you made about uh, pupils actually learning so much during the pandemic. We've had the same uh, thing going on in Scotland the BSQA, the Scottish Qualification Authority, cancelled exams and suddenly um, every, the whole nation realised that the exam system was not fair because it was a postcode um, lottery really um, and it was pupils out on the streets who were protesting and learning things that they probably wouldn't have learned um, on their own if they were at school so um, valuing diff these different ways of learning and um, focusing on the social emotional needs is definitely I think something all our listeners should be taking into account. Um, I think, uh, could you do you want to add anything or? Yeah, just going, I suppose what you've just said there, Melina, is so important, uh, that sort of mental health and well-being, Gloria. And I know that um, when we spoke with Professor David Gilburn, um, he said something in the podcast, racism will never go away. But that perhaps also is what's going to motivate you to keep going um, and fighting. And um, and I remember a conversation that um, you had with me and Melina um, in Edinburgh last year when I asked you for some advice and you gave me the analogy of a, I think it was an elephant. Um, and um, so I'm just wondering, because I, I think there's many teachers of color who try to, um, bring that anti-consciousness into their school with their colleagues with the young people that they're teaching but every so often they'll come across somebody who just will not budge um or and then or or maybe perhaps will say something to you that that really leaves you traumatized in a sense and i've experienced that recently as well when i was doing some race equality training and um 
and you know you will turn to your colleagues and I'll turn to Melina and I remember picking up the phone and speaking to Melina and sharing how upset I had been um, so any just I mean, maybe perhaps if you were to 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 revisit that analogy so that any other teachers of color who'll be listening those I thought there were really some strong words of wisdom that you had shared with me that day and if you can just perhaps share that again for our listeners that would be lovely so I mean one of the challenges of being in these so-called Western democracies is we start, we take on some of their values. And one of their values is that they have to win. You know, everything is about winning. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've traveled all six of the seven continents and there are places in the world where people don't really care about winning. They just care about being, they care about living, you know? Um, and so, I, I, I really try to urge us to move away from that notion of there being winners and losers. We're not called to win. We are called to struggle. And we want to struggle with integrity. So I gave the example of part of our struggle is like pushing an elephant. And the elephant has no inclination to move. It has no reason to move, no desire to move. <laughs> but you're pushing it. And some days you get it to move just a little bit and you get so happy and you come home and you're, you know, like, wow, I moved that elephant today. And then you go back the next day and the elephant is right back where it was before you got it to move. So you got to push some more. I remind my students of the artistic work of, uh, I've seen it in sculptures, I've seen it in paintings, of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. And we all know, just based on physics, what's going to happen to that rock when he gets to the top of the hill. It's going to roll back down. But what, what I say to the students is stop looking at the rock. Look at Sisyphus's arms. Look at his back. Look at his quadriceps and his calf muscles. They are so toned and well-developed. Sisyphus is getting stronger. Why? Because he's pushing the rock. And I think that too often we focus on the rock instead, or the elephant, instead of the way in which that rock or that elephant strengthens us. You know, as a critical race theorist, I'm with David that racism is permanent. And it's also normal. It's not aberrant. It's not that thing that just happens when this mean group of people put on, you know, hoods over their heads and uh, lynch to somebody. No, it's in the everyday. It's in the belief that, oh, you went to such and such school. Oh, we, don't know, we didn't know that you could do this. Oh, you want to be head teacher? I mean, it's, it's the looks when you walk into the department store, the, the, the notion that you can't afford something. You know, it's, it's not those big things. It's what I call the, the thousand tiny cuts. Those are the things that wear us down. And those are the things that we have to struggle against. And, you know, we're now in a, in a discourse where we understand it's not enough to say I'm not racist. That's always been the default statement of white folks. I'm not racist. It's not enough to be I'm not racist. It's you must become anti-racist. 
that's that's the goal to be anti-racist um and i think it's a it, it's a challenge because people have kind of slid by on this notion well i'm not racist nobody asked you that question what are you doing to combat racism that's the question that's the goal that's that's where you should be headed um but you know the elephant is going to be there it's going to be there but but you still have the obligation to push it um and you know that you're moving it by looking at the trajectory that your parents and your grandparents uh had set for you and where you are is a far cry from where they were and the only reason that you are where you are is that they did push it. Yeah, of course that's, yeah, so true. Mm. And yeah, I think it's so important to just value everything that our ancestors have done and yeah. recognize yeah. those struggles and how they've, they've grown as people and how they've helped us um, grow so much. And I, I, yeah, I love the idea of just focusing more on the process rather than the final outcome because anti-racism can't be measured um, as such. So it's a really important um, message for our listeners. Thank you so much. I think we should probably finish here because the podcast is going too long. Um, so thank you um, to our listeners for tuning in and thank you so very much uh, to Gloria for joining us today and sharing all this wisdom. It's really been eye-opening um, for both of us um, and I'm sure all our listeners will have gained so much from just this single episode. Um, so thank you and we wish you all the best during these uncertain times and hope we get to stay in touch. Um, and I suppose that's it for the Anti-Racist Educator episode. Well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for the invitation. I, um, I look forward to getting back to Scotland. It's uh, become one of my favorite places to go with that lovely green grass. Like it's really <laughs> green. And again, you know, I'm, I'm a castle nerd, so I like to go in and out of those castles. So. <laughs> that's great. Thank we'll find so lots much, of castles Claudia. for you for next time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gloria. It's, um, it's, it's always a pleasure to, to, to hear you speak about the work that you're involved in. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Enjoy what's left of the summer. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.